Is Canada still Canada? Are we still a free and democratic society? I'm Candace Malcolm and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi everyone, welcome to The Candace Malcolm Show. Thank you so much for joining us and tuning in today. Now, if you're anything like me, you have watched the change that's happened in our society, sort of like a slow motion train wreck has happened over the course of roughly the past two years. And what we have seen is an unbelievable erosion of basic liberties in this country, basic rights and freedoms, things that we took for granted. We took for granted so much so that five years ago, so so go back to the first time that Justin Trudeau was elected in 2015. If at that time someone were to say, in the Trudeau mandate, Trudeau will uh, completely suspend your rights and freedoms. He will use health quarantine rules to impose lockdowns, make everybody stay home, close down businesses, um, lock people out of the country, prohibit people from leaving the country, prohibit people from coming to the country. A any of these things, if someone had said that, that was going to happen, you'd shake your head and say, no, that's a conspiracy theory. That kind of stuff doesn't happen in a country like Canada. If you were told that we would live in a country where neighbors were, were snitching on neighbors, where there was derivative and hatred, uh, people pitted against each other, a huge distrust of other uh, components of society, different groups sort of pitted against each other. Again, you would say, no, not, not in Canada. Canadians are good-hearted. Um, there's, there, there's a sense of community. Canadians wouldn't do that. If, if, if you in any way were to describe the scenario of the past two years uh, to your previous self, to your 2015 self, you, you would have said, no way, not in Canada. And yet here we are. Here we found ourselves in this situation where public health order after public health order, uh, we, we continue to see people complying, people saying, okay, I'm going to do what you say because you're the expert. I trust you. And at the end of the day, I just want to be healthy. I just want to live. I, I want my my physical health uh, above all else. We, we, we live in a society where people are placing their health above their freedoms. And, and they're willfully doing that. They're willfully doing that. If, if, if you were to think about the last election, the federal election in 2021, we had the prime minister of this country, Justin Trudeau, willfully scapegoating an entire portion of society, blaming a portion of society uh, for the lockdowns, for the fact that we're still in this pandemic, and openly showing his his contempt towards people who are unvaccinated. Uh, we've never seen anything like that in modern Canada to the point where it doesn't really feel so much like Canada anymore. And I want to talk about this topic today with a brilliant Canadian scholar. My guest today is Travis Smith, a professor at Concordia University. He's a scholar, professor, and writer. He's written a series of thought-provoking essays critiquing our culture in the face of draconian COVID-19 restrictions. One essay I particularly enjoyed is called Have We Become Not Canada? It's, it's really good. It's worth the read. Smith warns that time is running out to free our country from its pandemic-induced contagion of distrust resentment and contempt of our neighbors. Another essay, which is actually a two-part series on the religiosity and the zeal of our society's reaction to COVID-19, as well as this idea that we have put, we've elevated our bodies and our physical health above our minds and our souls. And he, and he talks about the fallout of, of the sort of thought experiment where we trade off our liberties and our freedoms in exchange for good health, or at least the promise of good health, because no one can guarantee uh, good health. But regardless, very, very good essays worth reading. And to discuss these topics and break down these issues on a bit of a deeper level, I'm very pleased today to be joined on the program by Dr. Travis Smith. Travis Smith teaches political theory at Concordia University, and he did his PhD on the politics of medicine he studied at Harvard University, where he completed his doctorate. And so he's very well positioned to be discussing these topics today because he's been thinking and writing about them for a very, very long time. So Travis, thank you so much for joining the show and welcome. 
Thanks for having me on the show today, Candace. And so before we get into some of the themes and the topics that you've been writing about in these essays, these essays about COVID and the sort of overarching heavy-handed response from our political class, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, about your background, and specifically your academic research and the work that you've been doing up to now? Because it seems to me like you're perfectly positioned, perfectly prepared to be commenting on the situation that we're, that we're in right now, given that you have been studying this exact topic of the sort of intersection of medicine and politics? Well, I, I mainly stick to, as an academic, writing articles about things like early modern political thought, um, or uh, I, I teach uh, classical political science, uh, write about thinkers in modern times like Hobbes and Tocqueville. Uh, but I wrote my dissertation on uh, the role of medicine in early modern thought in thinkers like Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, Thomas Hobbes. Uh, and tried to understand, uh, you know, what role medicine would play in modern society uh, in shaping how uh, we regard the human condition and how we should treat each other and what kind of powers those, uh, you know, those who rule should wield over us and for what purposes. And so medicine was something that in early modern times was right at the very center of, at the core of what they believed the modern political and technological a world should look like. And uh, one of the ways it was expressed was that the things that in pre-modern times, people who tried to practice magic or alchemy, uh, what they wanted but could not get through their means, we could, we could get the very same things that the magicians and the alchemists wanted, but through a new kind of science, a new kind of technology. And so given that a lot of the goals of magic and alchemy were medical goals, um, you know, the, they were just looking for a new way to do the things that they had wanted to accomplish or achieve before, uh, indefinite prolongation of life and so forth, ch finding ways to change human nature. Um, and so it was also the case that you found that uh, uh, the language that was used was one where they could take old words and give them new meanings. And so you could have, you know, instead of faith in God, you would have faith in human reason that would be applied in a scientific way. Instead of having hope uh, for an afterlife, you would have hope for the future where we would manufacture for ourselves uh, a better world. Instead of uh, charity being about caring for people's souls, charity would be about caring for people's bodies. And the, the greatest part of charity would be medicine. Uh, and another thing that I looked at was how these ideas were not originally articulated in a fashion that was consistent with liberal democracy, but rather the opposite. Uh, and so I became, you know, as I was doing this research, concerned about whether or not medicine could be used in a way, advanced medicine could be used in a way that would be damaging to liberal democracy. So, you know, we're blessed in Canada to live in a society that has liberal and democratic credential. We, we are concerned about freedom and equality. Those are our highest political goods, but we're also concerned about things like medicine a lot. It's one of the things when you ask Canadians what we care about the most, medicine has always been one of the things that we say we care about the most, maybe even before the pandemic, we, a lot of people would have said they care about medicine even more than freedom and equality. Uh, and so um, the thing is when when the justification for modern medicine was even originally, originally articulated, even like 400 years ago, there was this double justification. On the one hand, you offer a public justification that medicine is for the, what they call the relief of man's estate. So it would be something that could reduce all human beings suffering. 
And at the same time, there was an acknowledgement among the scientists, as it were, the people who would be engaging in the development technologies, that uh, all of technology, including medicine, was really for the pursuit of unlimited power. Uh, and the moral argument was something that was offered, as I said, for public consumption. Uh, but really, the scientists would uh, and had to, for the for the sake of the the goods that they were pursuing, the goals that they were pursuing, have to be willing to do anything, try any experiment. Uh, you know, uh, uh, both human and non-human, in order to find out how we might, the expression was, uh, supersede human nature, or how we might uh, uh, impose new natures upon us. Uh, and so that was always there at the beginning. And so the question of something like the role of consent in this has always been ambiguous. Uh, the role of freedom in this, we think that medicine is good for freedom because if we have healthy bodies, you're more free to live your life, right? Uh, medicine is something that speaks to us as equals because we all have bodies that get sick. We all have bodies that die. So we're equal in those ways. But medicine, like all technologies can be used in ways that could be uh, negative with respect to our freedoms. Uh, and also medicine is something that, or health is something that we see also speaks to the ways in which we're unequal because some people are healthy and some people are sick. Uh, and even at the get-go of modern technology, they wondered whether or not it might be possible to use uh, all technologies, including medicine, in order to enhance the species uh, or to reduce the species to a condition of a kind of herd contentment uh, and uh, social control. These were all sort of thought about 400 years ago at the very beginning of modern political thought. So that's kind of what I investigated there. So when I see today stories I saw in the news a couple of days ago, a story about some new technology that they can use to read people's minds. Saw this on Smithsonian Magazine. And it's always the case that they say, you know, we, we, we develop a technology that will read people's minds because it's going to help the disabled. Which, of course, who could argue against helping the disabled, finding some way for them to have greater freedom, finding some way for their conditions to be more equalized with those of us who uh, don't struggle in the ways they do. So that sounds like it's fully consistent with liberal democracy. But for those of us, you know, who've watched any science fiction movie, you have to think twice about whether or not, you know, technology that can read our minds is something that might not be badly abused by the powerful should they decide to do so. We have to really trust that it doesn't get used uh, in ways that are harmful. Uh, you know, or what goes on in our minds, the, almost looking right now to be the last vestige of our privacy, right? Where everything else is surveilled or everything else is watched. Uh, you know, at least we've got our, the privacy of our minds and they, well, not really, you know, we can, we can have a machine that will read your minds too. And so it goes with that, you know, part of it is for the relief of suffering, uh, but part of it is also for the indefinite acquisition of power for whatever purpose the powerful might put it to. And so there's always this tension that is both, medicine is always both something that it's, it makes perfectly good sense that we liberal democratic people love it and want more of it, almost worship it, depend on it. And at the same time, medicine is among the technologies that is potentially most threatening to, most dangerous to the very things that we people who love freedom and equality hold dear. Well, so let's let's bring us all back into the context and Travis of COVID-19 and what we have seen go on in the last two years, because 
you know, what, what, what at first we were told was, uh, you know, two weeks at home to flatten the curve um, has turned into an evolving set of restrictions that there, there, there's a certain, you know, swath of the population that's just completely happy to do whatever they're told from health authorities. Uh, they, they're happy to, you know, go along with this idea that we can scapegoat people who choose not to get vaccinated. We saw in the news uh, last week that uh, Austria, a country in Europe, um, is choosing to impose health restrictions and, and um quarantine onto people who are not vaccinated. Uh, we see in Australia as well um, sort of extreme uses of uh, public health uh, rules to sort of quarantine uh, people who get COVID or quarantine people who, who aren't getting vaccinated. And so we, we see people going along with very extreme measures that I don't think that Canadians um, in theory w would agree to. But just given the circumstances, given um, the stress that we're under, uh, you know, two, almost two years into this pandemic, so many people are choosing uh, willfully to, 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 to sort of give away certain aspects of their freedom, um, like you said, their cherished beloved freedom, um, in exchange for greater safety, greater security, um, health. Uh, can you sort of walk us through your perspective on this as, as someone who sort of studied it from a political theory perspective? Um, is, is, this, is this predictable? Uh, what, what can be made of it? And how can we sort of start to push back those of us who still you know, cherish the, the, the idea of Canada as a, a country of free, of free individuals? That's a lot, Candace. I'll, <laughs> I'll try my best. Okay. Um, look, let's let's give Canadian Canadians credit at first, right? I mean, at first, when we were told that there was this pandemic and uh, we were told two weeks to flatten the curve, Canadians came together and said to themselves, "Yeah, that's the kind of thing we do. We look out for each other. Canadians are compassionate. Uh, Canadians do have a sense that we're not just, you know, uh, selfish." you know, look out for number one types, but that we care for our communities, uh, we care for the vulnerable. And so appealing to us on that basis was something that Canadians across the political spectrum in a lot of ways would say, yeah, that, that sure, that, that makes sense. We wanna protect ourselves. We wanna protect the people we care about, our, 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 our neighbors, our family members, our fellow Canadians, right? Um, and as we're recording, I'm waiting to find out whether or not the Ontario government is going to extend the emergency order through to the end of March next year, which I think some of us have been anticipating they would do anyways, we just didn't know how long they would extend it for. And we've come to wonder whether or not the emergency will ever end. Uh, and if there isn't any number of you know, reasons that they might continue to ex extend it. Uh, you know, we have had a campaign to, uh, to you know, fight this virus for a long time and somehow our numbers keep getting worse and worse again, despite all the efforts. Uh, or at least that's, you know, that's you know, the information we're given. And so um, we, we were stuck now wondering, do we ever get our lives back? And there's a sort of, I mean, you're, you're, you're a mother, right, Candace? You have children, you know, you know what, it, what you have to do in order to habituate your children to good behavior or what kind of behavior you want out of them. And, um, you know, I've seen people compare the way in which Canadians have been treated for the last year and a half, uh, not so much to good parents, but how children are treated by abusive parents or how people are treated by abusive spouses or how prisoners have their will broken down by various tactics. And this is like, you know, the, you know, the you know, bad child rearing in a sense that we're being trained to see 
what we'll comply with next. I had a conversation with somebody very recently where they just said, boy, I wish we'd be rewarded for doing what we're told. Um, but sort of once you've already embraced that mindset, if you, know, you, you run the risk that you know, you're not ever gonna be rewarded, you're just going to keep being told. Uh, because you keep hoping for the reward that may never come, or if they give you a little bit of a reward, they take it away again very shortly. And this is where this is where I'm concerned is that, you know, especially for example, what really got me concerned more than anything else this summer, I mean, I sat on the fence about a lot of this for a long time and just observed, had lots of conversations with people, just looked at the information my public health unit was giving me and tried to sort of scrutinize their charts and make sense of their interpretations. Um, you know, watch the news and, you know, talk to, talk to people in my community uh, outside of academic circles. It was very important for me to talk to lots of people outside of my academic circle. So a lot of academics get stuck in only talking to other academics, like people in any profession get stuck mainly talking to people in their own profession. And things stopped making sense uh, at a certain point. And more than anything else, it was the introduction of uh, the passports or the certificates, and especially the way they were introduced in Ontario, where uh, the public health unit said they would do it if the government didn't. And that struck me as a kind of usurpation of authority of the sort that we've seen from public health. Uh, you know, the kind of thing that really should belong to our elected representatives being something that was being, you know, uh, imposed upon them or threatened uh, if they didn't do it uh, themselves. That sort of got me upset. I got concerned about the certificates. I got really upset about the mandates. Um, and part of it was I'd always been the kind of person who was aware of what, you know, the, the kooky, crazy people said, you know, when, when this all started. Uh, but these kinds of measures were the kinds of things that they had predicted from the get-go. And so when I started seeing that being implemented, my attitude was, you know, I, gosh, I really hope they stop making, you know, the, the the conspiracy theorists look good. Please stop making them look good. Please stop making it look like they were right about anything. I don't want them to be right about anything. Um, but once they were introduced and people embraced them, people were excited for them. People couldn't wait to use them and brag about using them. And I got very disturbed when I when I teach the the concept of liberty to my undergraduates, Candace. One of the examples I like to use is uh, the way in which we see no left turn signs when we're driving in traffic. Uh, and I grew up in Ontario and I got used to the no left turn sign. That's the one that has the left arrow and the red, no, don't do that, right? Um, and then I, I, I work in Montreal and in Montreal, they like the other sign, the one that's got the green circle with the up arrow and the right turn arrow um, and I explained to my students that these are not the same. They say technically they're the same, but they're not the same because what's the principle behind them? But the principle behind the red no right turn sign is that you should, be, you should assume you could turn in any direction at any given intersection. That's, you know, but generally it's your right is everybody's right to turn in any direction at any given intersection. But for some very specific reason here, you're not allowed to turn left. Um, sorry, this one, no. Um, but the green go straight or go right sign, I mean, they make it green so it sounds nicer, red sounds mean. Um, but the green sign, the premise behind it, the principle behind that is, 
unless we tell you what you're permitted to do, you don't know what you're allowed to do. You have to wait for explicit instructions from the authorities to give you permission to do what you might, may be allowed to do here or there. So when you come to an intersection, you're like, oh, I get to go right or I get to go straight here because they're letting me. Uh, and the psychology behind those two is quite different. And when I saw the certificates get introduced, it struck me as sort of a massive sort of implementation of a transformation from the first mindset in Ontario to the other that says your freedoms are the things that the authorities give you. You're only free to do the things that we allow you to do. And, and unlike rules of the road, uh, these certificates will now apply to individuals, one person at a time. And with respect to particular compliance, with respect to one particular uh, requirement presently, but who knows down the road whether or not any number of other you know, factors might be added into them to, gear in, to give you the requisite permissions to do uh, what you want in life, to meet with who you want to meet with, to go where you want to go, to enjoy what you want to enjoy. Um, and, and in a world in which we're sort of trained ever more to always have to make sure we're checking all the boxes so that we can get the requisite permissions. And then we're supposed to call that getting our freedoms back when it's actually having our freedoms taken from us. You know, government no longer being the authority that tries to arrange things so that everybody can exercise their natural rights and freedoms, but instead only getting to exercise what particular permissions are granted by those who deign to make the rules to decide what uh, you're allowed to do on what criteria, um, that's concerning to me. And so there's a sort of you know, training of us to embrace and to accept, not even to notice the change. I was saying before earlier about how words get changed without us necessarily seeing the ways in which words get changed. And so here's a way in which freedom has been radically changed in the way in which it's being understood and uh, practiced and in which sort of, you know, the fact that people don't notice it or even that they're thrilled to see it. Uh, and part of that thrill is because they get, some people get to see that they get freedoms that other people don't get uh, and that they're being as they reward it. You know, you're, I said, you're a mother. It's like, you know, you've been a good boy or girl, you get a cookie, but they've been bad. So no cookie for them. Um, and it's just, you know, I understand the, 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 the public health justification that's offered for it. We could get into that if you wanted to. But, but it, it's, it's, it's something, it's something it, it suggests something much greater, something more. Right. Well, I, I, I mean, one of, the, one, one of the things that I sort of picked up on in reading some of your essays and, and some of the things you're talking about now is how this pandemic in so many ways has brought out the worst in people that, um, the, you know, the whole idea at first was that we're all in it together. And I remember people would go out onto their uh, stoop, you know, the front door in Toronto and people would applaud and bang pats and pans thanking um, nurses for and, and hospital workers for their sort of bravery at the very beginning of the pandemic. And there was a sort of sense of community that, that we started to feel. And and you know that has been completely torn apart to the point now where you know you see this sort of uh, you know that 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 infamous Toronto Star headline that ran in the in the front page that ran in the summer um, about you know let them die people who are unvaccinated uh, we saw Justin Trudeau yeah and 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 Justin Trudeau during the last election um, just willfully 
you know, scapegoating and demonizing people who weren't vaccinated and, and sort of running his campaign against them. Um, and, and, and we've seen this sort of ugliness, nastiness come out because, I, I mean, to me, I think it's because people are just frustrated with the, with the scenario that we've been put in and they just want it to end and, and they're told you know, by their political betters that if you just follow these guidelines, it'll be over. And to your point, we keep following the guidelines and nothing's changing. So just final question for you, Travis, what, what do you think, what do you think we can do as Canadians, as freedom loving Canadians who, who want to restore, you know, the, 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 the basic rights of individuals, putting freedom ahead of all these other things, but also, you know, appreciating the community that we live in and that, you know, Canadians are free so we can have different choices. What, what do you think the best thing that we can do um, at this juncture in time uh, to, to, to prevent the sort of medical tyranny from continuing to stand up and, and say enough is enough? Uh, what, what, would you, uh, what would you advise in that regard? Um, that's, that's, a, that's, that's not an easy question, Candace. Um, what can ordinary Canadians do other than that are upset about this? Uh, and and, and uh, what, what can they do to express that uh, is, um, uh, you know, there, there are those who are making an effort to express it through uh, communicating to their MPPs through uh, showing up at uh, demonstrations where they're vilified for being at a demonstration um, or if you know if the media covers it right um, and uh, you know trying to talk you know I make a big point in one of my articles about just trying to talk again one of the things that the lockdowns have done in isolating us individuating us making us feel alone powerless and weak um, is that we stop talking to each other uh, and I think that it's important for people to actually have conversations with each other again and have conversations with people who don't agree with you about everything I think that's important too um, and uh, yeah I don't I, I don't know where else to to place my hopes in terms of uh, ordinary Canadians um, uh, I'm, I'm sort of more concerned about what might come down the road. I mean, as I said, we've been sort of trained to go along with one thing or another with the understanding that if only we comply here, then maybe next time uh, we'll get rewarded for our compliance, um, only to find out that we have to comply with something else and something more. Uh, and I'm also concerned about the way in which on the other side of things, uh, the people who enforce the rules are being trained to get used to enforcing rules that you know challenge if not uh, violate people's rights uh, and what are they getting used to uh, going along with and uh, the, the, to me the, mo the biggest moment of hope in the last year or so was when uh, Ontario police declared they would refuse to do spot checks when the government told the police to do spot checks and they said no we won't do them that was the greatest sigh of relief to me. It says to me that people in positions of law enforcement know that there are things that they should not do. Uh, know that there, there are jobs that are not appropriate for them to, or orders are not appropriate for them to follow. That it's not their job to do that. Um, and, and so I have to continue to uh, have faith and trust that, you know, should, you know, they be given further instructions that look like they go further in cha challenging or violating 
ordinary Canadians' rights, that they will, you know, say, no, that's not what we do. And so I, I, I have to have a lot of hope in that. Well, great. I, I really appreciate the, the essays that you wrote. And I, I think even just, you know, by writing them and articulating some of the problems uh, that we're having, it, it gave me hope that, you know, some of the fears and concerns I'm having about our country and the way things are going, I'm not alone. And so I, I appreciate uh, your contributions and uh, it's great to have you on the show, Travis. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Candace. Thanks for having me on the program. Thanks for everything you do at True North. All right. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.